Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Hidden History Happy Hour fans, welcome back. Imagine that you're in a city being faced by Russian occupiers, and that city is in Ukraine, and you need to protect yourself and your workers. And now imagine that you can hear this story directly from someone who lived it in Ukraine with Russia invading. That, H4 fans, is the special treat we have for you today. At the request of our special guest today, I will be drinking bourbon. And of course, though I don't always drink bourbon, when I do, I drink Blue Run bourbon. It's classic, it's delicious, and it remains the official bourbon of the Hidden History Happy Hour. Alex, welcome back. First official and most Good heartfelt to see you, congratulations on your forthcoming new book, Thank you very much. History. The imaginatively titled More Lessons from History. Uh, the delay <laughs> between the first volume and the second being the challenge of coming up with such a, an ingenious and unexpected title. Cheers. Cheers to that. Cheers. I, I know our, our viewers would love for you to pull back the curtain a little bit and tell us about the no doubt big bucks and endless polling and data analytics and focus groups that undoubtedly led to that revolutionary title. Right. Well, we, we uh, I mean, I, I was ex I thought we might go with lessons from history, Miami takedown uh, or something <laughs> like that. But my publishers outrageously thought that was a bit obscure. I, by the way, I'm on Blue Run as well. Um, awesome. Yes. Your yes. first Alan, show. Alan, what are you drinking? I am drinking a Blue Run as well. Get ah, out. That not even People will never believe it. Not planned. That's fantastic. Not planned. Very good. Uh, welcome. Uh, welcome to our show, Alan. Um, Alex, as one of our fans has commented, we don't seem to have to go out of our way to find amazing guests. Yeah, we true. just know them. Now, this is true, and it's also a little false because we don't just know them. We work very hard at our day jobs, and we're exceedingly careful about who and what companies we get involved with. And we're both fortunate now to have the luxury of choosing who we work with. And I have the pleasure and honor of officially working with and welcoming our special guest today, Mr. Alan Harlan. Alan is a career executive and owner of digital transformation services company, Access Software Dynamics, a custom software development organization based in Dallas, but with operations in Europe and in particular on this day in the Ukraine. Alan also is a phenomenal multi-talented executive and currently the chief financial officer of Theon Technology, a revolutionary data security startup that I am proud to serve as an advisor and general counsel. Welcome, Alan. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, gents. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I uh, couldn't uh, imagine spending it any better uh, this weekend <laughs> with you folks. So thank you for having me. I know you're enjoying your Blue Run bourbon there in Dallas, Texas, where it's what, like 106 Fahrenheit? It, it is. It's incredibly hot. Uh, I would gladly trade with either of you, Jets. Uh, it's pretty hot in London. It's, it's, it's in the, is it? This is not helpful for those doing different systems. It's in the 30s, <laughs> uh, which it. is hot. Well, that's pretty warm. Yeah. Uh, Alan, I know your Ukraine story, but Alex and our fans don't yet, and I can't wait for them to learn what I know. Uh, Alex, though, has a story a bit tangentially like what you lived through. So, Alex, why don't you kick it off? Thank you very much, Brian. Um, my favorite image of a defector, it's very specific, because I think when you're picking your favorite defector, um, it's hard to look past Rudolf Nureyev, 
uh, Milos Forman, um, Oleg Gurievsky, one of the bravest guys um, around that we will discuss one day on the podcast. And my most favorite, valuable intelligence source. Incredible, in one of the best assets that the West ever had. But my favorite image of a defector is Konrad Schumann, who is the border guard who jumped the wire between East Germany and, uh, and West Berlin um, as the Berlin Wall was being built in 1961. Schumann was in the, the Beipo, uh, the Bereitschaft Polizei. Uh, if you're a German speaker and I uh, flubbed that, tough luck. Uh, You'll hear indeed. And Schumann was a, it said that the, the Beipo was like basically a paramilitary police organization, which was created right. to act as the boot by which the state would stamp down on rebellion and its officers were selected and then trained to be loyal without question. Um, and I suppose that's part of why one likes this example so much of someone defecting because it shows that um, given the opportunity, some even amongst the enforcing class would prefer freedom um, to the repression in their own republic of watchers and informers. Schumann had been sent to guard the new barrier site, which started, you may remember the images, quite flimsy barbed wire and, right. and then got built up um, to keep people, they were sent there to keep people in the east in as they started building the what became the wall. Uh, and it became obvious that they were going to, um, to not be able to access West Berlin anymore. And, uh, and that was the duty of a generation of bullies to come after yeah. the duty that he pulled in 61. Conrad Schumann was 19 years old on this day in 1961. And he was sent there uh, three days after the construction of the wall had started. So his section was only barbed wire. And at his post, as he was standing there, as he told it later in life, giving interviews about it, he could see a young woman on his side of the wire passing a bouquet of flowers over the wire to uh, an older woman that was obviously her mother in the West. Uh, and one can imagine the considerable emotional distress that they exhibited. And, and he thought to himself, who parts families like this? Who wishes to be part of a regime that does it? So unnoticed by um, his comrades, um, Schumann had pressed down a part of the wire that was near to him, and he passed word to a Westerner who was watching on the other side that he was um, going to jump. So uh, the Western police arrived uh, to whisk him away uh, from the scene if he uh, dared to actually do it, and, and he dared. He was standing guard by the low loops of barbed wire that you may remember in the photograph, and he had his back to his stone wall, and the crowd on the Western side were, were chanting, you come over, come over. And probably um, not the most helpful, helpful thing for a stealthy operation, but go on. Well, quite, but I, I think that first of all, none of his comrades actually expected him to do it. Yeah. And secondly, I don't think his comrades expected him to do it. They imagined those chant, those chants were aimed at other people. And um one of the things that makes, because a lot of these moments are lost in time, like tears in the rain. Um, yeah. But what makes this one so remembered is that so many people were there and the image is captured by so many different um, cameras from so many different angles. Um, his leap for freedom gave the world one of the enduring images of the Cold War. His arms outstretched, his gun on his back, the muzzle facing downwards with the strap stretched tight in his hand. And his head is down, uh, his face all, all but unseen beneath the helmet, so determined. It's like an everyman image yeah. for all of those who were repressed in the East. 
And ever, after the, that, everything is epilogue but, and coda, but it is sad epilogue and coda. Because mm. after that great impetuous moment, I, I'm afraid life in the West did not bring uh, Schumann happiness. He was relocated to Bavaria, far from the border. Uh, he found work and he married and he had a son, but he was forever full of regrets and remorse and sadness and fear because he wondered, am I going to be a target for retribution? Uh, as so many other defectors and critics had been and few were as high profile as him after all. And he was left for the rest of his life, of course, for the rest of the time that the East endured with um, worries of what would happen to his family that he'd left behind in the East because of him and what he'd done. And Schumann said that he never felt truly free until the mm. wall, the barrier that he had jumped in 1961, the barrier so closely aligned with the barriers in his own life, um, came down in 1989. But you can wait for years thinking that some goal is the vital thing that fixes yeah. everything. If only this, then everything in life would be good. <clears throat> and sadly, that was not the case for him. When the wall came down, Schumann was met with bitter disappointment. He visited family. They were strangers to him. People who knew him before he had deserted, in inverted commas, yeah. and wanted nothing to do with him. So after the seemingly positive resolution of the conflict uh, between East and West that had defined Schumann's life, and after the peace he had waited for so long, peace was not to be found um, for Schumann, Comrade Schumann, and he hanged himself from a tree in his own uh. orchard. I mean, without sounding too kind of Scandinavian existentialist, um, <laughs> the lesson, I'm afraid, is rather bleak. We must all strive for happiness, and many will find it, but for others, some will never be happy without freedom and others will never be happy away from their homeland. And sad to say, some will never be happy at all. But mm. I think there is an irony in that that makes this story so revealing and worth telling because those unhappy souls who will never be happy can prov still provide all of us with these glorious soaring moments in what we speak we see in what we bear witness to in what they do which can serve both to inspire and to bring hope to a generation to come on both sides of a wall or a wire yeah inspirational indeed although sad i, I will say that the thing that I, I realize i've been waiting for all my life that moment is in fact a hidden history happy hour and i am well, finding well, peace from it so <laughs> thank you thanks for putting that in perspective uh, Alan, so uh, Thank you. I know that I know that you are yeah excellent story, Alex. I know that you're uh, quite well traveled uh, and that you specifically located your business in Eastern Europe because you wanted to experience it. Have you been to Berlin and specifically have you been to the um, Museum of the Wall? I have not been to Berlin. Uh, I've been to Germany maybe a hundred times, but never to uh, Berlin. So. Um, Something I've got to put on the on the bucket list and get over there for sure. It's it's worth a visit just to Berlin is spectacular anyway. But this museum of the wall, Alex, I don't know if you've seen it, uh -huh. but it's it's quite it's quite moving. Um, and there's many, many stories of East German soldiers who refused to fire on uh, people that were fleeing and then they yeah. themselves were punished. And it's quite a it's quite a place, especially because, you know, uh, the Cold War memories of the Cold War are fading. Uh, in some people's minds, I imagine we might have a few listeners that maybe didn't realize at the beginning of the story that we were talking about East Germany uh, during the early period of Soviet-Russian occupation. And sadly, uh, not a lot has changed. Uh, Vladimir Putin of Russia is still reaching out and killing uh, people he doesn't like. Thankfully, he never or his predecessors never reached Schumann. 
Um, but uh, Alan, why don't you tell us how you got to Ukraine to begin with and what your experiences were there? And maybe we'll talk about what we could learn from that for uh, current events. Sure, sure. Happy to. Happy to. And thanks. Uh, thanks again for having me today. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned earlier, um, uh, well-traveled, uh, worked for a, a private equity fund out of uh, Palo Alto, California for about 10 years, mainly had operations in uh, India, been to India 57 times, uh, mm-hmm. uh, into uh, China, uh, we had stuff in Nizhny Novgorod in, in Russia, um, so uh, have been there, Latin America, Poland, a lot of operations into Scandinavia, Western Europe, uh, all across North America. So uh, basically, if you guys have spent any time traveling uh, west into India, <clears throat> it uh, you definitely have a different perspective uh, yeah. and lump, lump China into that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I had an opportunity to uh, take over a CEO position uh, in a company. It's actually uh, based out of Ukraine. Uh, and if you, in my original uh, introduction that Brian went through, uh, digital en- uh, engineering space, digital transformation is where companies do outsource product development services for companies across the world. These are companies like Microsoft, Apple, uh, basically can't get enough scale or hire enough developer engineers within their organizations. And they look mm-hmm. for different skill sets like, um, you know, data engineering. Uh, so you need skilled mathematicians, applied mathematics, uh, and frankly, that's very rich across Eastern Europe. Yeah, um, right. Very high standards of education. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. So it's not uncommon to hire a PhD or MD uh, to work in a life sciences uh, data engineering project, something like that. So, uh, so basically, what I was doing is really kind of migrating from uh, working in in Asia uh, to more of an Eastern Europe. Uh, type um, go-to-market style. And this company had uh, roughly about 3,000 engineers across Ukraine uh, through nine development centers. So uh, Lviv, Kiev, Ivano-Frankis, uh, Rivna, uh, even into Dinopropetrovsk to Kharkiv, uh, going to the east. Um, and as far as south as Sevastopol in Crimea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I when I started in in uh, 2013 working for these uh, working for this company, it was very dynamic, right? So had the opportunity to uh, get a flat in Lviv on Chernobyska Street, uh, you know, quite elegant. And I think that's the thing that really kind of strikes me yeah. is that whether you go to uh, Kharkiv or Dinopropetrovsk or or even to the coastal town, the laid back town of Sevastopol in Crimea. Um, you know, it's it's a, a very beautiful, very beautiful yep. country. Um, <clears throat> and I was quite, uh, you know, even when you think about what's occurring in the world today, and you think about uh, eastern Ukraine, Donbass, uh, Luhansk, um, and you think about what's occurring there, even in that time in, in 2013, 2014, 2015, it was very, very Ukrainian, uh, right. a lot of yellow yeah. and blue. Uh, very proud uh, of the country, and the citizens were just probably the most earnest, um, you know, just patriotic folks that you could ever meet in your life. Yeah. And you know, so basically, I go from uh, being a you know an American CEO to really what was starting to transform um, 
in, in 2013 was Viktor Yanukovych, who had really, uh, you know, if you look at the oligarchs within Russia today, uh, Viktor Yanukovych was really embodied that same mentality. And I, you know, I don't know the number uh, specifically, but I do know that um, uh, Yanukovych was basically took about 30 billion uh, in funds out of Ukraine. Yeah. And so as you really got to uh, really managing. And sorry, business, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Alex. So he was mm-hmm. the uh, Alan. He was the president at the time when you got there. Right. Yanukovych. That's, yeah, that that's correct. That's correct. And um, what was what was his relationship to Putin? Do we know? Uh, other than I would, um, you know, uh, quantify it as very similar to Lukashenko and yeah. Belarus. I mm-hmm. mean, just a, um, you know, a hardened Russia supporter, a Putin supporter, and obviously lived in the same mindset of a oligarch. Yeah. And really, how much money can I siphon uh, from this country, from these regions, you know, to funnel back to Putin uh, from that perspective? Yeah. And so basically what, what you saw, you know, is, uh, uh, you know, going from running these companies to beginning to go to uh, basically meetings, you know, where, um, it, you know, the, the mindset was Slava Ukraine, her own Slava, um, you know, so glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes, you know, and, and really the embodiment of the Ukrainian people and really how they, they'd really had enough of that oligarch mentality right and and i think if you've spent any time you know in that region you know you go to the western ukraine it's very european um you know it wants to adopt those ideals uh and at the time uh there was a big mindset to move ukraine into a europe uh the eu and also move it into move it into nato as well I think some of the, um, you know, the basis you needed as a company within Ukraine, you needed to be audited by, you know, a big accounting firm and, um, you know, really do uh, business the right way, you know, financially, as opposed to uh, really funding the local government per se, who may want to take your servers uh, because you didn't pay your, your Microsoft license or whatever. Well, it sounds, uh, just, a bit like, it sounds a bit like a protection racket. Uh, very, I, I would say mafioso, um, yeah. you, you know, but I think when you're, when you're paying a police chief and he's making uh, 15,000 pounds or, you know, an equivalent in, in Rivna on an annualized basis, how do they make, you know, 100,000 pounds a year? And they do it through these, you know, subversive means, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it, it wouldn't be uncommon for uh, Yanukovych or even Putin, as he's known to do, is to walk into your business and say, hey, I'm your new partner uh, today. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is obviously how you start siphoning funds to these oligarchs. Um, you know, so you had that mindset going on in the country. And it was really quite a dilemma, because how do you migrate from, yeah. you know, th- this undercurrent making, you know, a uh, hundred thousand pounds a day to something that's much uh, more, you know, standard to with that, that particular rate. Right. So you had these, these undercurrents that are going on, but um, you know, so the, the first thing I would say is that you really started to see people that wanted to get to that European lifestyle uh, that wanted to move in that direction. And I will say it was not only 
from Kiev West, but it was also in the east. Yeah. Uh, even though today, when you start looking at Luhansk, Donbass regions, and um, it, you know, I know there's Russian separatist regions within those areas, but it still is very largely uh, Ukrainian. And, and, and as I mentioned earlier, very proud of what they were doing. So uh, basically, as we, as we moved on into 2013, this is when we started to see Euromaidan. And, um, you know, Euro, Euro Square is the big square in Kiev. And I, I'm sure both of you guys have been there. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, but, you know, just uh, it embodies uh, Ukrainian uh, mentality, Ukrainian life. Uh, I would say it was a very European uh, mindset from that standpoint. But what you saw uh, in this Maidan, in this in this town square, was really a movement that went from a beautiful place where families were out to really a full-scale uh, military operation. You know, from Ukrainian people, they were pushing it back against uh, Yanukovych um, and, you know, to form the Maidan Revolution. And, um, you know, so myself, uh, personally, I probably had uh, six to 700 professional software engineers working in Kyiv, you know, as well as across Ukraine. And, you know, the biggest dichotomy is they would come to work during the day. And then at night, they would leave to do their military job. Uh, and, and the military job is, you know, if you thought about the presidential palace in Kiev, um, Yanukovych would have the Ukrainian military basically around the presidential palace, right? Because it got to be, uh, I would say Yanukovych, he was obviously very paranoid, but he got to the point where uh, Ukrainian people were getting so... Um, upset and organized back against uh, what Yanukovych was doing, uh, that they were starting to build military bunkers, uh, actually had the ability to go down and, and go into the center of Euromaidan to the Ukrainian people, uh, to the revolution uh, headquarters, right, oh, where they had boy. their military, and walk down and they want to know what's your purpose of being here, <laughs> Now, let me, let me, so let's well, hold on, Alan. Let's unpack this a little bit because I think yep. people may be getting confused. So you're saying that there was the uh, Ukrainian government actual military run by Yanukovych, the president, that was basically his personal guard force. And then as the revolution started to really kick into gear, I think you're saying there was a separate military that was being built in sort of in secret, covertly by the European um, hopeful, the people that were hoping to join Europe. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think it went from very covert to open and outward, right. As they start to, um, you know, not unlike you're seeing today in Ukraine. Uh, So you're starting to see, you know, other countries starting to contribute, but these, these Ukraines were basically getting their own weapons, whatever it took to formulate an offensive back against the Ukrainian uh, military. So, so these are software engineers by day and, and, and essentially armed rebels by night. It, exactly. And tell, exactly. Us about your, tell us about your visit to the bunker then. That's my term, not yours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it truly was a bunker. If you think about sandbags and all piled up, uh, to withstand um, a helicopter attack or tanks. They had tanks and helicopters yeah. and, and everything around there. But 
basically creating a resistance to say that, hey, no more, and we'll use, you know, force to do this. And I can say, um, you know, as you walk out of your office during the day and you walk into this military operation at night, it was very surreal. Yeah, um, I would think so. And, uh, you know, it really kind of takes you out of the life of a, a CEO of a software company, software development company, uh, to understanding what's going on. We even got to walk up. I mean, we walked directly up to uh, Ukrainian military protecting Yanukovych mm -hmm. um, and very staunch with them holding um, AK-47, uh, you know, guns. So it was, you know, on one hand, you're going, hey, nothing's going to happen to me. On the other hand, you're, you know, you're, you're right in the, in the forefront. Yeah. Um, you know, and eventually it got to the point where everything just went into mass chaos, um, where you had Molotov cocktails, you know, from mm -hmm. the, uh, the Ukraine people to the Ukrainian military. Um, and, you know, I, I think from uh, probably from a U.S. standpoint, you know, we read about it daily from Uvalde, from uh, what occurs in Buffalo, New York, too. And I think for me, the simplest thing is like South Chicago, where you have hundreds of murders yeah. a year. Uh, and it's not uncommon to have multiple hundred within a summer. But uh, once the Ukrainian, um, once Ukraine's military protecting Yanukovych attacked with snipers, the Ukraine people right. uh, in the beginning of 2014, and where roughly you had 50 uh, people, Ukraines, that were shot, killed, software engineers to yeah. farmers to uh, every walk of life that wanted to protect the Ukrainian way of life and existence and that movement that they made to more of a, a free lifestyle, right? Yeah. To expand, to grow, to grow their economies, um, to see this. I've never seen such distraught, uh, such hopelessness of uh, people I worked with to see these murders, uh, well, me, you know. Let me ask you this, Alan. You're, mm -hmm. you're essentially painting a picture of ordinary people with extraordinary courage who were willing to lose their lives in order to get the Western lifestyle or, or, you know, European values. What was their daily life like when they weren't fighting? In other words, how repressive was the Yanukovych regime? Was it sort of a police state or was it really more, they lived an okay life, but they wanted something much better because they laid down their lives for it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's a very good question, a very interesting question, right? So I, I think at the time, at the end of 2013 and to the first of 2014, when uh, Yanukovych was actually overthrown, uh, there was an essence of a police state, but I think it's very much like you see today. Uh, you really have, when you look at Ukraine, you look at everything from Kiev uh, west, and I, I'd say that's very European, right? If you, yeah, right. If Lviv is a European city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could be somewhere in France or uh, Austria. I mean, it's very quaint. It, it's very European, right? And it's not too far from the Polish border. Well, except uh, for the occasional artillery shells these days. Well, but now, yes. but yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, very strategic where they where they oh, shoot, yeah. right? Yeah, but even in the time, right? And and so once you go east, um, you know, it, at that time you had Russian separatists that were coming into Donbass. Um, it was kind of interesting, um, you know, when all this was going down, right? So when everything started to, 
to really hit the fan, uh, if you will. Um, you know, it, it really transitioned quite a bit to a military operation, but it was very segmented. It was very targeted. Mm-hmm. Like Russia came in and took over Crimea. Uh, we had about 200 developers in Crimea. Oh my gosh. Uh, uh, actually in, in Sevastopol. So we had to shut that operation down because U.S. clients did not want to deal with uh, anything to do with Russia at the time. Uh, you know, so you had those those types of ideals. But, um, you know, I think on one hand you have and I'm trying to answer your question. On one hand, you have that Russian way of life, you know, where a family lives in a kind of a box style communistic yeah. uh, apartment, but it's their block. Yep, exactly. Right. And you can have multi-generational families living in these environments, but it's what they know. But on the flip side, they are hoping for more, you know, promise and more of a way of life. Right. That's not as constrictive, something that is more European. Um, You know, and I think it's kind of, you know, if I look at Crimea, uh, Putin and Russia came into Crimea. They had a scam election in 2014. And basically, most of the people that lived in Crimea at the time were older um, Russians. The men grew up in the Russian military. They served in the Russian military. Uh, even some of the, the uh, board of directors I worked with, they were in the, in the Russian military oh, you wow. know, be- before the um, you know, USSR um, and in 1990 or so. You know, so they know that way of life. And so in Crimea, it was no problem because everybody said, oh, we're going back to Russia. That's the way it is. But if you yeah. try to do that in Western Ukraine, yeah. it's got a totally different meaning, a totally different context, if you will. And I'm also trying to paint the pitch, picture that even in uh, Kharkiv and Donbass and, um, you know, Eastern Ukraine, East, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's still so much uh, pride uh, you know, for Ukraine as a, as a country, right? And I do think you have spots of Russian separatists, um, but it's very Ukraine. Uh, it, and it's, it's unfortunate that Russia is carving out that, uh, that Eastern peace today. Uh, so they have a pathway to the Black Sea, to the Sea of right. Azov. And, they can, uh, so and they, they can cut Ukraine off from the sea. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's where their military bases are, uh, naval bases, you know, so it's very strategic uh, to them uh, from that perspective. Right. So uh, I got to see all that dichotomy uh, between those two. So in that 2013, 2014 time frame, did you lose people? Did you lose facilities where any of your buildings hit? I know the Crimea takeover, the invasion by by today's horrific war crime standards by Russia was pretty bloodless. But what, how close were your people and your facilities to the, the death and destruction? Uh, so, um, so probably the, the closest was uh, uh, Kiev. Uh, so where you had Euromaidan and those pieces and we had uh, developers killed uh, mm-hmm. by snipers, you know, in the, in the scheme of things as oh, I compare to Chicago. Uh, you know, it's very tumultuous. Um, You know, and when, uh, you know, national television, BBC, CNN, whatever, right, when they broadcast uh, riots of Ukrainian military for Yanukovych, uh, killing, shooting and, you know, Molotov cocktails and fights going on, um, you know, A, it was very, very volatile, very precarious. Uh, On the other hand, I will say that 
you know, I found our employees and I think just generally the people of Ukraine to be very sincere, to be oh, yeah. probably the, the most balanced people. They would show up, they would sit on conference calls, they would be very professional, you know, but when five o'clock came, 1700 hours, they would walk out of that building to go do their duty, yeah. um, you know, f- yeah, for their country, right? So they, they did their best to keep the company intact, uh, but also to protect their, their country and move forward from that, right? Yeah, so. I, I know I know one of your first priorities is the safety and security of your people. And so don't answer this if you can't. Uh, but are, are some of those same people in the fight today also? Yeah. In, in fact, um, you guys know LinkedIn and it's not uncommon daily or, or at least weekly to have uh, somebody that you knew and you worked with, you know, that's posted, hey, please remember Andre you know, father mm-hmm. of three, you know, our colleague for 15, 20 years, you know, was killed today. Um, you know, and, oh, and unfortunately, you know, it's going to get, um, it, it's going to get uh, a lot worse. I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, y- you know, I, I think, you know, um, y- you know, for me, A, there were some really cool aspects. Uh, John McCain actually came to Kiev uh, at the time and, right. and spoke to the crowd. You know, and you'd hear everybody, you know, say, you know, Slava Ukraine, hero, I'm Slava. Um, you know, very patriotic. Um, uh, again, very surreal, but very uh, cool to to watch that. Yeah. Uh, but but then, you know, just Russian separatists coming in in Donbass, uh, melee jet, you know, shot down by, um, you know, Russian uh, separatists and and Russian missiles. Um, you know, so really. You know, really, it went from uh, a very promising, you know, high growth company actually still doing very well, but it got really, really quite precarious uh, over the time uh, in that 2013, 2014, and then and basically resurfacing today. And these and these separatists, uh, Russian separatists that came in for those listening, I just did air quotes. I don't know if you could hear it in my voice. Um, Did were they? Uh, I mean, actual people that really wanted to be part of Russia? Were they soldiers? Were they the little green men in disguise? Who are those people? Um, You know, I I think they're uh, just for hire military folks. Yeah. So, um, you know, at the the time, and I think there was, um, you know, I'd say A, I'd say when Putin went into Crimea, and took Crimea, there was little, I know there were sanctions by Obama, but in reference to somebody coming in and taking a piece of the sovereign country, no, we there didn't. was very, very little uh, no. that happened. You know, no, that was, we, we, might, we might as well have just waved a red flag in front of the bull. It, it was, I'm going to say yeah. shameful in hindsight, for sure. Um, you know, so that was a, a definitely a, a downside. And I do think that Putin did not want to take uh, Russian military and directly move into eastern Ukraine. So it was very um, easy, easier and less political uh, inference for him to send in mercenaries yeah. uh, to, to fight those, those wars, right? Uh, and as they came into uh, Ukraine uh, this year, um, you know, it was all based on Re- Russian separatists and Nazis and um, yeah you know, and, and the harm that was coming back against to those, those Russian speaking uh, countries. So same premise, only this time he sent in the, the Russian military, um, you know, from that perspective. So, 
so, you, you know, I, I think the good thing that came out of this was that from uh, 2013, 2014, uh, the CIA uh, and the, and the, you know, really everything along NATO uh, had the ability to train Ukraine forces. And I will say that, uh, and you and I have discussed this, I think it was a, you know, a vast mistake to think uh, by the West to think that Russia was going to come in and just overrun Ukraine. And it was because of the preparation by the West, by NATO, that really hardened Ukrainian military and provided weaponry to defend against uh, Russia. So I think it was, uh, when I think if we look at uh, military intelligence and that fact that Russia was gonna come in and dominate Ukraine, um, you know, I feel very strongly we, we've got that, that wrong and that, you know, we didn't act as quick as, as we should have in the front yeah. end. Yeah, I agree with that, although I will say that having had some experience in this area myself uh, back during the long ago Iran-Iraq wars, um, when I was an intelligence officer, there is this strange phenomenon that political leaders, and I've seen it in both parties, um, discount the advice that their spies and their analysts give them if it doesn't fit with the narrative that they want to believe. And both sides get this wrong. Intelligence officers tend to have a mindset of if any president disagrees with them, that president must be a political hack. Whereas in reality, and same thing with prime ministers, I'm sure, Alex, um, yes, you hear the intelligence reports, you, you listen to the analysis, most presidents do, but you have a much bigger canvas that you're painting on. You have a lot of other things going on politically, economically, that your spy service may not even know. On the other hand, and this was very true in the Iran-Iraq war, as it turned out, how do you explain, I'm taking your premise as a fact, I don't know it to be a fact that the CIA was in there training the Ukrainian uh, uh, national military and rebels. How, how, does, how do those people not get in the room when a decision's being made? Because obviously if they're there training the forces, if they knew what they were capable of. And yet that doesn't seem to have factored at all into the decisions as far as we can tell. There's not really a question in there. It's just a very long comment. But how, how do you, um, you know, I think we've all been tremendously inspired by the Ukrainian people uh, in this moment in history. And uh, despite the fact that we're now in the summer of 2022 and uh, unfortunately, the Russians seem to be doing better. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know how you can watch what those people have done, the Ukrainian people, and watch what uh, their president has done, and watch how the West has responded, and not believe the Russians can't make this, can't win this. What What are your thoughts on what's going to happen there? So, so I think, um, you know, if you're asking me, I, I think that, um, yeah. uh, so, so I think the resolve of a uh, Ukraine is, is phenomenal. I think everybody underestimated that. A, uh, I am quite pleased at the, uh, the West and the amount of arms that are pouring in uh, from the West. I do think that um, Russia militarily, um, you know, I, I think, you know, I think it was way overestimated yeah. uh, from that perspective. So I don't think that 
uh, a if we had to look at initially russia was just going to walk through um ukraine go to moldova maybe poland just keep going and take the entire country or at least take kiev you know from yeah. that perspective uh, but I do think that um, a Russia is a lot weaker than what we perceived yep. initially. Uh, I think just the economic toll that uh, Russia has taken based upon Western sanctions, um, and it may not be immediate, but I do think they were weakened by by thirty years. Um, you know, something from an economic basis. Um, so, so my, my point is a, they're not as, um, they haven't been as effective as we thought they were. They may achieve their goals. They may win the battle, but I think they've lost the war. Yeah. Um, specifically if you take about, um, you know, the Fens and the Swedes going in, oh, NATO. Yeah. um, and I think it's just the military buildup by NATO. Uh, and the amount of arms and focus that that's pouring into to that region. So, um, you know, so will they accomplish? And initially, I thought they would take the east, eastern mm-hmm. Ukraine, uh, you know, and have like you like you said, right, block off Ukraine's access to the Black Sea mm-hmm. uh, from a shipping port, but also a military strategic uh, landmass into uh, Crimea, and they're achieving that. Uh, I think they will win that, but over the long haul, I think they've been dramatically weakened. Um, And, uh, you know, this may just be wishful thinking, but I do think that um, in terms of Russia being a, um, you know, a superpower, uh, I think they're dramatically weakened and and will be and will be uh, reduced. And, you know, you hear the things about Putin's uh, health. And um, I do think that's a key indicator when Putin goes out, at least maybe it's um, wishful thinking, but I'm thinking that, um, you know, it moves more in a European alignment as opposed to uh, a a Russian historical thinking. Hey, Brian, I have a couple of caveats to that whilst I'm topping myself up. It's an awfully (laughs) run. Um, The the first caveat is I agree with everything you said about Russia's being diminished on the world stage. But uh, And you were not doing this for a moment, so I don't mean you, Alan. But a lot of people talk about us, the West, having cut Russia off from the world. And that's not true. We've cut Russia off from the Western world. And I was reflecting on this as you were talking at the beginning about your experiences in China and India, markets and the Middle East, markets that have proven far more willing to be open to Russia activity and and exchange than than the West. The second um, interesting thing I think about what you said was that you thought they would seek to take the East, and that's right. And there's a word for this in history. It's Finlandization. The Finns mm-hmm. gave up ten, about 10% of their country to have peace with Russia. And, uh, and if history is anything to go by, that's the kind of inverted compromise, as it, uh, inverted commas compromise, disgraceful bullying that Putin is going to be aiming at. And whilst mm-hmm. one, uh, last but not least, cannot but um, admire the Ukrainians in the way that you and Brian have both set out for their resolve, the way that some in the West have behaved as we get there is really disappointing. It's disappointing to me that Britain had to fly sorties around Germany to yeah. get 
material to um, uh, to, to Ukraine. Uh, a friend of mine who's, who was very senior in the, the armed forces talked to me about this after we discussed it on one of our episodes. And I realized that if anything, I'd lowballed the impact yeah. of that. Because when you think log- about logistics, every mile you add to the journey adds remarkably to the cost, what you can transport, the weight of what you can transport. And it's a big bit of dirt you have to fly around to avoid German airspace. They, they, they were the material cost of thousands of man hours probably tens of thousands of uh, 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 of items that we could otherwise have transported in the time that we were doing it and last but not least i've been really disappointed by the fact that um germany's remained on the um on the receiving end of significant amounts of energy from russia as prices globally have spiked making that worth more uh, to send to russia and i appreciate that they by dint of their own choices on their energy mix have made themselves so dependent on it they would have struggled to see another way Whilst Nord Stream 2 has been uh, stopped now, Nord Stream, 2, Nord Stream 1 is still going. Uh, and the Germans are paying through that a very significant amount of, of revenue, or have been until very recently, to Russia in an environment where energy prices are spiking. So for much of the invasion period, Germany has been paying Russia circa a billion US dollars a month. That will go some way to subsidizing an invasion. And I, um, I don't mean it too provocatively to our German friends to say that the Germans, by dint of their energy choices, have been subsidizing the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, it's most unfortunate. And I think it, at least in the beginning of the conflict, probably gave Putin a lot of comfort and aid to see the even that amount of distance between the US and the UK on the one hand and Germany, because after all, that's part of his strategic goal was to split Europe and, and the U.S. and to split NATO. And as, as Alan right. points out, he lost that spectacularly with Finland and Sweden. But uh, I think the jury's still out on Germany. Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, on the, overall, it, it must be a profound negative for Putin to have driven further, as they see them, border countries into yeah. the arm of, uh, arms of NATO. But nevertheless, it's been you know, some countries simply haven't honoured the promises they made about equipment that they're going to send to yeah. um, send to Ukraine and so forth, too. So it's not all a rosy picture, I'm afraid. Well, the inverse is also true, though, and I just want to raise a glass uh, to the UK's leadership in this area. Uh, I think President Biden has done an overall pretty good job, but Cheers. as has happened several times before in history, I think uh, UK has uh, stiffened the spine of we Americans at well, a very, very important time in history. Uh, agree. Uh, totally uh, agree. Thank you very much. And it's whatever else you think of him in his time as prime minister, Boris Johnson um, led the way on, on that. And it's worth uh, mentioning um, that, I think, as he's uh, resigned his office, that, that that is an achievement that the Ukrainians are first to recognize, actually. Yeah. Um, they, they, there was this incredible thing when Boris Johnson announced his resignation, where across Ukraine, um, businesses and uh, public sector organizations adopted, adapted their logos and their strap lines. So they had this kind of uh, very recognizable shock of blonde hair on top of an O in the middle of a name or yeah. instead of the dot on top of an I. And uh, it was a heck of a heck of a tribute. Well, that moment where he popped up uh, in the middle of the square. With, Did it twice. Um, yeah, it was yes. both yeah. times. And it was not only quite an achievement from a security standpoint, but just for morale, it's, it, it, it's invaluable. And, uh, you know, again, thanks for that. Yeah. Alan. Yeah. Um, what's the 
what's the morale and what's the security situation to the extent you can say with your folks in Ukraine today in the summer of 2022? Are you feeling, you know, they're relatively safe or are they really in the thick of it or what's going on there? Um, well, I think, uh, you know, you can compare what's currently happening today to back into even 2013, 2014 is a, um, Ukraine's government has imposed a mandate that from 18 to 60 years old, males yeah. uh, must enter into the service. You can't leave the country. Um, and even back then, there were ways to around that, um, you know, some of the physical efforts, the way they served you. Uh, but lot, by and large, they're, the, the men are doing all they can in that regard. Right. So I still think you have that dichotomy that by day they're doing their job by night. They're they're waging war. I think for me, the, the biggest travesty is uh, the families, the women and children. Uh, you know, when you look at a country that's 46 million people uh, and you've had probably the last I saw was north of 11, 12 million women and children that have been displaced. Uh, and that's not only in the east, uh, you know, yeah. that's in um, uh, largely across the west because, you know, probably... Um, um, you know, standard uh, uh, profiles of families, you know, the men uh, take the rest, they send the women and children, they go to Poland, Bulgaria, um, Hungary, you know, wherever they're, they're moving to, you've seen this mass exodus. So, um, you know, I think on, on one hand, uh, very resilient people, but on the other hand, you cannot overlook um, the displacement of, you know, 12 million people and the families and their lives yeah. and, and what's going on. Uh, I will say that some of the, the West is, is fairly stable. So you've kind of had uh, folks that have moved back in. Uh, but I mean, it just, um, you know, to me, it's really sad um, that you've seen such a, an upsetting of uh, just standard lives and, and, you know, and probably mindsets of, of yeah. children for years to come. Oh, generations. Uh, yeah. 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 And um, so, um, you know, there's good and bad out of everything. I will say that, you know, they've adapted, they, they move into other countries to continue to run, you know, uh, Poland being probably the, the closest example, uh, even back when in 2013, 2014, we moved into Bulgaria, Sofia, uh, and then also into Roslov, uh, Poland. And, um, you know, so, I mean, there's there's ebb and flow that occurs. Uh, there's just some underlying fundamentals that just break my heart, though. Yeah. Uh, well, talk about digital transformation, though. I mean, this you know, whether it's uh, the Starlink communication system that um, that the West stood up there, whether it's the way that the Ukrainians have adapted these drones to modern warfare, they and they've already got, I believe, a minister for digital transformation who is they do. while they're fighting the war, securing funding and creating programs to rebuild Ukraine as a much more digitally advanced society. And not that they weren't before. They've been leaders in that area. And you're, I'm sure your folks have been some of those leaders all along. But it's, it's, quite, it's quite remarkable, really, what they're doing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, for me, when you get into uh, Eastern Europe, you know, and ex-Soviet uh, countries, you know, like Ukraine, like Belarus, um, and, you know, having spent the time that I did in, in India and China and a lot, a lot of time in India, you know, where they're graduating 
probably a million engineers a year. And if you get into uh, really the, the block of Russia and Ukraine and Belarus and Hungary and, and Poland, you know, maybe it's closer to, um, I don't know, 25, 30,000 engineers a year. Uh, but I will say that the mindsets of applied mathematics uh, engineers, it's much more, I think, in the, in the East, it's much more well suited to uh, software development. Yeah, right? it's it's not as it's not as general. So you have some world class data scientists and just pure engineers that come out of Eastern Ukraine, uh, and their their expectation. I think they're a little. Uh, they have a basis to push back. Um, yeah. specifically on, on Western uh, European businessmen or business people and, and also across North America as well, too. So I think their delivery is, is quite a bit more stable in that regard. Uh, so there's some definitive, uh, you know, advantages, um, you, you know, and I think, you know, there's good people across the world and there's smart people across the world. Uh, but I do think that's one thing that that really Eastern Europe has going for it. And even Russia as well, too, is just the class of, of yeah. engineers. And, you know, frankly, uh, you know, soft Mark Andreessen software is eating the world. And uh, you're only going to see this, you know, uh, digitification of or digitalization rather, um, you know, of economies, of technologies, of industries. Um, and you're going to need more and more engineers, right? So uh, there's not going to be a preponderance of, of focus by one country, and you're going to see global growth in, the, in this area. So, um, yeah. Yeah, the, the, a very senior official at Avast told me one time that they, they very strategically located their software development in the Czech Republic for exactly this reason that it's much more uh, prioritized, it's much more focused learning, and they have much more, much greater sort of practical day-to-day -day software development skills when they get out of school than a lot of, you know, places in the West. Look, we could, we could do this all day, uh, and uh, we've taken a lot of your time. And we, as you know, we do a history show with a few cocktails, but yeah, thanks, rarely, guys. rarely, rarely do we get an actual witness to history as it's being made. And so hopefully we're doing a little bit of the first draft of the history of a resurgent Ukraine. And maybe we'll look back on this in a few years and um, be happy that we were optimistic. Hey, Alan, come back and talk to us in a little while and update us because I think you've been fascinating to listen to. You'll know I haven't said very much because you're a great person to, to, to learn from. But I also want you to know that we're thinking about your staff out there. And yes. This wasn't just a, an exercise in getting your thoughts. It's also an opportunity for people to hear about what uh, is happening for people who do jobs who are just like us, who just happen to be unlucky enough to have been in a country that's been in, unjustifiably invaded. And there's any small bit we can do to publicize that, we're really proud to. Very well thank, said. Thank you so much. I, I completely agree. And I guess that leads me to one last question, Alan, which is, I, I suspect a number of our viewers and listeners are going to be motivated to try to help. Do you have a favorite uh, set of NGOs or how, how could people help? So, you know, you can go online, you can Google it and you can donate directly to uh, Ukraine's military. Yeah. Um, you know, so, um, so A, uh, I choose to donate and funnel money. So it goes directly to the military, to Zelensky, so that they can uh, manage that money uh, that way. 
I've also found that UNICEF is another good mm -hmm. uh, funding vehicle. Not only do they help uh, across Ukraine, but they also help in the border countries like Poland, where you've had this mass exodus mm -hmm. uh, of people, right? So, um, you know, so please give, um, you know, this is one of the things that's going to be for the long haul. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, some really, I, you know, Slava uh, Ukraine. I mean, I, I just think there's some real, um, there's some great people there, smart people, just wonderful hearts. And so please give, give, give. Um, we are going to vet with you uh, the links that are in the show notes as our viewers and listeners are enjoying this podcast. So what's in our show notes will have been confirmed as not being a scam because in Alex's in my day job, we do a lot of data security, cybersecurity, and there are a lot of scams out there. But folks, you've you've heard this directly from someone who has people in harm's way. So please uh, give what you can. And uh, Alan, we will have you back. We are not going to give up on this story. I'm a little concerned that the West is getting a bit of media fatigue oh, yeah. at this point, but it's yeah, not going to happen on this podcast. And we will definitely have you back. Thank you. Alex. Excellent. Cheers. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, Cheers. 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 Thank you so much, guys. I really Thanks. appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers.